My name is Alfred Hitchcockroll. This is the studio where myself, Stephen, and Eva will record a podcast about the horror genre. My friends will talk about things too horrible to tell you here. I want you to note that admission will not be granted halfway through the podcast, and that you must be seated from the very beginning. And if you spoil the ending, I will end you like I ended Tippy Hedron's career when she wouldn't sleep with me. Seriously, look me up. I'm terrible. From the corridors of Manderley Hall to the cabinet of Dr Caligari, from chasing a dead child in a red coat through the dreamy streets of Venice to being chased in your own nightmares by a grotesque figure in a red-striped sweater, a monster shark who swims a little too close to the shallows and a crew trapped in deep space with an acid-mouthed xenomorph on board, Rosemary's baby, Baby Jane. Since George Méliès... Le Manoir de Diable, in 1896, horror has proven one of the most prolific, affecting and versatile film genres, having produced some of cinema's most unforgettable characters and uniquely stirring scenes. And yet, it's also seen as a genre ridden with cliché and tired old tropes, the same old scare tactics used time and time again in 2D characters. This reputation has arguably tarnished the effect of what were some of its most groundbreaking moments, Films like The Exorcist, Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street have been spoofed and reinterpreted to the point of being made laughable. This episode, the Spectacles team is determined to bring about a reappreciation of classic horror and its effect, reminiscing and analysing about some of our personal horror favourites in a bid to illuminate what makes the genre so extraordinary. Not just its ability to evoke fear, but its ability to psychologically challenge and even console. My name's Eva. My name's Alfred. And I'm Stephen. Question one. What, generally speaking, is a horror film in terms of genre? And what are some of its sub-genres? Um, okay, so I'll, I'll kick things off by saying that horror is one of the three... Uh, well, you might debate that there's only three, but um, the article I read, it's one of the three uh, body genres, as it's known. So all films, regardless of genre, will have some kind of uh, an effect on you uh, emotionally or physically, unless you're completely disengaged. But, you know, um, these when I say physical reactions, I'm talking about things like if you if something violent happens on the screen, like if someone gets shot in the kneecap, you might kind of flinch with a, a kind of phantom empathy with the the person on screen. Or if a character is going through a struggle, you know you'll you'll root for them, you'll kind of emotionally invest in them. But what makes body horror and um, sorry body genres a little bit different from just these other kind of um, the other emotions that other genres produce is that it's not just um, a reaction it's a mimicked reaction like you'll actually go through the same uh, at times physical uh, sensations as well as emotional sensations as the characters on screen so for instance um, melodrama uh, is another one of the body genres so in melodramas if a character cries on scene 
if um if there's a really emotional scene you might actually mimic them and cry with them so you're not just responding in your own way you're actually mirroring the reaction horror um is obviously fear is the is the emotion that you mimic so um in the same way a character if a character's cowering in fear from a monster your skin might prickle the same way that theirs seems to be doing um your heart might start racing so it's a it's a mirrored physical reaction the other genre just to get out of the way is pornography because <laughs> the the point of pornography when you watch it generally is to uh yeah it, 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 induce yeah. in your body this, what's going on on screen and uh yeah but um so that's so that's one way of um categorizing horror which is uh, a genre that promotes the bodily response of, of fear makes sense i suppose do we then recoil from violent gory images because we sort of feel the the violence feel the gore or is that different are you talking about generally in films or yeah, more generally in films well th- this is kind of maybe what we'll get into which is i've said that horror i've put it out there that horror can be defined by the genre that makes you feel fear but you could also argue there's lots of films that produce fear different kinds of fear that wouldn't be classified as horror films so um i suppose what i I haven't said so much is horror generally is associated with supernatural elements as well Mm -hmm. but then sometimes that's not true either you know because you get films like psycho and peeping tom where the the monster is very much human so i guess what we're i'm We'll we'll go into this in more detail later, but I'm just kicking off, though, can we get a bog-standard definition of horror? I think of it as a genre concerned with thrilling the viewer with frightening or adrenaline-inducing imagery. Mm -hmm. But your definition, which includes this other word, affect, which we'll probably come on to, um, suggests that that adrenaline comes from empathising with the adrenaline felt by the characters on the screen. So it could possibly be extended into just films containing adrenaline. Um, Stephen? I think that's um, certainly true with a lot of... uh, So horror, I think you know it when you see it. That was um, something someone said about pornography once. Uh, You know it when you see it. Um, So what you were saying about does it do we sort of emulate the the feelings of the gratuity on screen i don't know if that's really what the point is i think there there's a couple of characters that we could look at as being our points of our points of engagement and one of them is the victim and you always see in the first film in a long running series it's from the point of view of the victim and so what we're experiencing is the the tension and the release, the 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 build up of fear, and the catharsis of uh, resolution, uh, as we follow them throughout the adventure. But then, as horror series go on, and they almost always just get more and more ridiculous and more and more out there. Um, the the draw is is the killer. It's Jason or Freddy, and we're almost laughing along with their enjoyment or their uh absurdity uh so th- th- this would be a slasher specific example i suppose um is that helpful yeah ever do you want to respond no i think i think that's right i think i've my um 
I, I was um, going for a very victim-focused analysis, yeah. empathetic um, analysis, but you're right. Um, there is... Um, you, you'll probably be able to talk about this better than me because I suppose affect and emotion is more um, is, is more the angle I'm coming from. But uh, yeah, I I think it's definitely worth talking about the uh, the uh, the more positive horror watching experiences where it is fun, where we and mm-hmm. um and um. You know these characters like Freddy Krueger, who it's not that you necessarily root for them, but you can watch Nightmare on Elm Street now, and you, you're kind of looking forward to the scene where Johnny Depp uh, gets dragged through his bed mm-hmm. and and the room, and that that crazy Kill Bill burst of blood, like you know, goes through the bed. Yeah, yeah, I think um that that pleasure is definitely something we can highlight. It's definitely I think a valid also- part of it definitely um with a lot of filmmakers like people who are involved in production there's a joy with horror uh because it's such a not cheap but it's a very cost efficient genre and so there's a lot of intense creativity in its production um and when you mentioned uh, you know the the births of blood uh and I, so if you look at filmmakers like Peter Jackson or Sam Raimi or James Gunn, I mean, essentially the directors of some of the most successful franchises of recent years, uh, they all got their starts doing practical, handmade, low-budget horror films. And um, so there's also that other element of it too, where... Yes, we do feel the affect of uh, engaging with the character, but also I think there's a lot of joy for many people in the unreality of it too. Uh, mm. Almost the uh, the awareness of watching something fake. Um, and it's not always laughing at it. It's laughing with it sometimes, because I think all of those directors that I mentioned do have great senses of humour too. And so... The horror genre is is really tightly interwoven with... Because I, I was surprised that one of the three genres of affect uh, wasn't comedy. Mm. Although, uh, I suppose maybe the characters on screen aren't laughing and that's mm-hmm. the point, is that mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're laughing at experience. So it's not directly an empathy thing. Um, but then again, Ricky Gervais' cringe humour would definitely be the, the fourth genre that is comedy um, horror right there yeah yeah i should write to that scholar and and demand the amend their list with ricky gervais's cringe humor it's yeah fourth, i think they should yeah the fourth genre of yeah i'm interested in what you said there about the kind of lack of reality um i watched a documentary in preparation for this uh, called the art of horror and it's clive barker talking for half an hour about um, nice. his experience of horror and about a bit about Hellraiser, which is his um, uh, magnum opus. Um, I mean, it's heavily paraphrased this, but the way it was, something he says in the documentary is kind of that horror shouldn't need to present itself as being possible or probable in reality. It should bask, in his opinion, in a kind of unreality to truly shine and to truly horrify us and to be imaginative. 
which is an interesting way of putting it because I think I, I struggle to think of many um, uh, mainstream Hollywood re- releases over the last decade that haven't been in some way this could happen to you about it like this mm. is a house or a vacation a holiday home or a, a, a you know god forbid you know a flat you know where where things where any of these things were showing you could reach you theoretically and this is what it would feel like and they base themselves very much in reality kind of 90 percent of it hmm. So a distinction that I've always had a bit of trouble with is the line between horror and thriller. Mm-hmm. So with thrillers like uh, most things by David Fincher, but particularly uh, Seven, Zodiac, uh, these are films which are so overtly gruesome uh, that they border on being slashers. Um, but the difference is that there is that they're not realistic but they are films of realism they they're trying to say oh this is how dark life is uh this isn't this isn't your hollywood uh reality you know um which is a different kind of uh constructed reality obviously but uh so i think what our friend uh alfred who would know got right Indeed. there is is uh actually yes it is about the fantasy isn't it because horror and fantasy and science fiction it, it's this great big venn diagram where with horror and comedy sort of crossing over and then science fiction many of uh yeah because because when I when I talk about you know Freddy Krueger or or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I'm kind of doing it in a you know wildlife documentary kind of way where I don't really enjoy those things, uh, so I'm kind of like trying to theorize why someone might. But there are a lot of films which I love which can be classified as horror, but the angle that I tend to come at them from is through the sci- usually science fiction. Angle. So, I mean, obviously, Alien is brilliant. The Thing. Um, another uh, genre which I think is absolutely fantastic, even though its creator is hashtag cancelled, um, rightly so, is uh, Lovecraftian horror, where uh, it's it's fantasy, but the purpose of Love Lovecraft's writing is to make you feel the immensity of creation and your insignificance in it. And that as well is about the way it makes you feel, right? We we follow the characters. They go into an abandoned house. They see a creature with a million suckers. They lose their sanity and die. And we sort of follow them on that journey and feel what they're feeling. Mm. I, I would say I found it interesting that um, the man you quoted, Clive um, Barker, yeah, saying that he thinks it should completely exist in a realm of its own, and you were saying you, you think horror films of the last decade too much try to base themselves in the real world, or I would, however, argue that in order for horror to work, 
defamiliarization is a really big part of it. And for that, you need a little bit of familiarization. So even though people, the, the effects have dated a bit, I think what disturbed people so much about The Exorcist when it came out is that it was shot. And what actually yeah. impressed me about it, even though I didn't find it very scary, I liked it as a film because I thought it was very solid as a drama. Mm. Like it was a very realistic depiction of what a possession would look like. And it really did make you feel like this could be happening in my street next door. Um, and that's obviously considered like a powerhouse of, of horror. So I kind of get what he means. I think maybe the problem is, I think there's two problems. The first problem is a film called The Blair Witch Project, which was a perfectly good film in itself. Well, I think so. I know, I know it tends to divide people. If you watch it in the right circumstances, it's a good film. Um, but the problem with The Blair Witch um, Project is it, it was fake found footage. And at that time, this was a new thing and not everybody, it, and it took people a little while to cotton on that it wasn't actually a true story. The Blair Witch was a completely made up myth. And that kind of sparked this need to for horror films to be like, this is based on a true story. This is, or, or even recreate found footage, yeah. like the Paranormal Activity series, none of which I've actually seen. Um, so that kind of... Um, really trying to force a sense of hyper-realism uh, into films, I, I think, is a mistake, particularly when it's done as cat-handedly as it tends to be done by... Um, I'm, try I'm trying to think of some titles off the top of my head, but I don't really go to the cinema to see horror anymore because it is, like, with a few exceptions, which I'll mention the later. Boy. Yeah, Yeah, bottom of the barrel. Um I think I would what I would blame there is more laziness and yeah. storytelling, laziness and script writing. It's not actually the sense of of realism that's a problem. It's that your fantasy element is bobbins. Can I just say I completely agree. I think I should emphasize that that documentary I mentioned came out in the 1980s. Oh. So he wouldn't have known about, you know, paranormal activity or, <laughs> yeah. unless he has extraordinary foresight. Um but I think he was talking about he wants horror to be a bit of a carnival of images, mm. kind of almost. He thinks a bit of a bit of a bit of the nonsense um, is what kind of thrills him the most. He's into the world of comic books as well, where that is even more the case. Um, I just want to make a point about what you were saying, Stephen. About um, a, you mentioned two films, Alien and The Thing, both of which I think are excellent as well. Um, and I looked up the, the definition of slasher, which is the first subgenre that you mentioned um, that you mentioned here ever. That's the first subgenre of horror. Slasher is defined online, well, on Wikipedia again, um, as being a film in which you have a group of people gradually taken out one by one mm -hmm. by some threat. Alien is that. And the thing is that. Oh. And I initially, when I hear the word slasher, I think that is everything I don't enjoy. The kind of, you know, who's going to get stabbed in the throat next sort of stuff. I hate it. But if you think, if, if honestly, if that's the definition of it, it's a group of people and they get picked off one by one um, in, a, in a horrific manner, that's alien and that's the thing, both of which are brilliant. So I guess I do like See, now, slasher. That, um, that subgenre, that format... Uh is often uh, credited as going further back to Agatha Christie. So mm -hmm. the uh, alien was referred to as 10 little Indians in space. So again, <laughs> it's <clears throat> it's about um, 
it's that crossover again between uh, thriller, crime, and horror. Yeah. Where uh, the, the the seeds are in the the thrill of the the tension, isn't it? It's it's about getting out of your boring, monotonous life, and uh, and and feeling something. <laughs> Question two, then. Um, what is the pleasure we derive from watching horror films, particularly my horror films? What are some of our favourite horror films, and why? Asterisk can also do other forms of media, TV, video games, even novels, if you wish. My favourite horror film is Alfred Hitchcock's Treatment of Women. Sorry. Um, let's actually pay attention to what Alfred has said for a second. Um, what is the pleasure we derive from watching them? Stephen, start us off. What is the pleasure that I derive from it? Um, <clears throat> I actually don't... I don't really like... I don't really like being scared, but I I do find it kind of appealing... The allure of looking at something forbidden, the sort of taboo, the... You know, when, when you're a young teenager and someone comes into school with a VHS tape of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> uh, you know, I remember watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre on... it was Someone uploaded it to YouTube when we were in third year of high school. And I just sat down and, and I watched... I didn't... I skipped all the story and I just went to the gross, grisly bits. Um, and then it was Burns Night, so I went downstairs and had haggis... And that's probably the worst way to prepare yourself for some haggis is to watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, I tell you what, so we're saying what pleasure do we derive? I really like the sort of metaphorical aspect of horror films. Mm. With Predator, which you can easily just call a sci-fi or just call a thriller, it, the the concept is what if humans were hunted like we hunt animals um and so there's this sort of vegetarian uh an animalist uh message to it but also i think what a lot of people engage with that film is just how masculine and testosterone fueled it is um in alien i i heard a good reading of it is it's like a dissection of the falling apart of the nuclear family so the the scene with with all the crew sitting around the, the like the dinner table together and that's when the first one of them dies mm-hmm. uh all of those characters have been separated from their families they they've been put into this corporate uh soulless world um and they become each other's family but uh but then the family's torn apart through reproduction right and it's just this really sort of well, I'll say it again, Black Mirror. And when I say I'll say it again, I said that about two months ago on a different podcast. It's like this Black Mirror metaphor for um, anxieties of the time. Mm. Mm. And so I think one reason that, that horrors can very often be disregarded and set aside in their times, but then em- are just embraced by critical and cult following later on is because they become pieces of their time where you can put yourself into, for example, uh, a, a film about uh, 
red fear, you know, through through aliens taking over people's bodies, or a film about uh, grappling with colonialism in in King Kong. Uh, when we go back and look at these films, they have more value because they're like time capsules. And I think that for me is is the most interesting part of them. It's because there's quite a lot of subtext, yeah. even though the super text is splattered all over the screen. Yeah, so Alien in many ways I think of as a film about sexual assault. You know, mm-hmm. given the imagery that's there, when you look mm-hmm. at the xenomorph and you look at the way in which it's the way in which it started initially fertilizes the the hand grabbing thing on the face and you think about the illusions that's making and you think about the way it bursts out of the chest in a kind of painful way the shape of the thing you know it's the fact uh, it's a woman left alone with it the fact it's a woman left alone with it trying to go yeah exactly and there therein lies the kind of feminist subtext of the film as well and um as well as whatever anxieties of the time, as you say. And then you've got The Thing, and you've talked, I think, before about, well, you certainly on our radio show that we did, you talked about The Thing as being a, a very interesting film to come out in the 1980s during the um, AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to touch on that. Um, sure. Well, l- like you, Stephen, I, I enjoy interpretation. I enjoy um, reading into... Uh, what's behind the monster? What's making it scary beyond its uh, beyond its physical appearance? Um, the thing I think came out before AIDS was a the AIDS epidemic had taken off, but it just seemed extremely. It, there was an accidental, really interesting allegory there, where you had these these five six men, whoever however many it was, scientists trapped in this enclosed space. And there's this, they know there's this infection in the ship, but they can't see it and they all suspect each other. And the tag, one of the taglines for the thing was, look closely at your neighbor, look very, very closely. And that was kind of what people had to do during um, when this epidemic took off. Like, I remember one of my lecturers saying, like, it was really stressful, no matter who you were, you just, you, you went back in your head and went, who who did I sleep with? Who did I sleep with? Do I, do I have to start panicking? Um, and I, I find it interesting as well that um, there's a scene where they try to figure out who's infected by drawing each other, by um, taking blood samples, and someone tries to, I think, uh, tamper with their blood sample, and then it's just this most, it's this most invasive, putrid like violating monster that comes out of them on the other side yeah. and it just grows and grows and grows throughout the film like first it's just uh, it, it affects a dog and then it expands to humans and then it, it and then it kind of its entities take on a life of its own there's the famous spider head scene which is just glorious i think <laughs> and then of course at the end it becomes something bigger than anything can contain it's this immense monster that that you it's so difficult to kill so yeah there's a going through my head right now is the coronavirus and whether there'll be other kind of <laughs> well, horror allusions to that. It's interesting as well, Stephen, that you said they can be like time capsules, but something else that makes a great horror film, I think, is its ability to adapt with um, with the new kinds of uh, social anxieties. So you're totally right. The thing could might as well have been a film about coronavirus. Yeah. 
Um, or something like Rosemary's Baby, which I think is hugely about like the monstrousness of pregnancy. Yeah. Um, and the fear of, of what's inside you and the and you know, the way people start to control your body like because rosemary's baby is about a woman um a couple who live in a new york flat and a a very um it's one of the like the exorcist it's it could be a what i love about it is it could be a great drama just by itself um a woman lives with her actor husband and they move next door to what seems to be a slightly eccentric old people but turns out to be a, a coven of witches and um when they try to start a family she just notices them becoming more and more controlling and her husband's changed and just it's like the whole world is turning against her and um she wants to protect what's in her body but everyone's after it and it's just that kind of I think pressure and feeling of of spatial violation and just unable to stop what's 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 going to happen because of course in that time like abortion wouldn't have been um legalized yet in the in the U.S. so you know, you didn't have a choice as to what was coming. And I think that's very reminiscent of the worst experiences of pregnancy. Yeah. Any other favourites, Tom? Other favourites? I mean, seeing as um, Alfred gave us that little asterisk, I'm going to mention um, just a few things you've introduced me to. Twin, Because I, I never watched horror before I met you. I never watched <laughs> it at all. Um, it, was, it was the kind of thing I thought, well, why would I subject myself to that? <laughs> but... When once you showed me how horror can uh, lap into that kind of um, uh, what's the word that it can transcend just the sort of initial scares and it can kind of show you something that's going on under the surface the way it can be very psychological and artistic like there's almost a there's some ways in which you know some art can only be ex- expressed through horrific means i don't know if i'm mm-hmm. making sense so i think of twin peaks and i think of some amazing stuff in that it's a david lynch uh, tv program from the early 90s and later 2017 uh not watch the return series but the scene that sticks out in my mind is like being just kind of exceptionally done horror is a scene where Bob, who's the kind of villain, if you like, I'm not going to spoil too much there. Um, it, there's just a scene where you have a camera pointed at a sofa in a living room. A woman is kind of watching the sofa inexplicably. And then from behind the sofa, you see this man emerge uh, with long silver hair. And then he just very slowly, and we cut back between her frightened face and him and he just sort of clambers over the sofa kind of like a a predatorial animal would as it starts to approach you um and it comes closer and closer and the camera from the perspective of the woman is totally still totally fixed in place the entire time as bob comes closer and closer and then he gets almost right up towards the camera and it sort of increases in pace and your heartbeat's racing. It's cited often by many people who love film as a kind of exceptional horror scene. And the reason I think it's scary, and many people say they don't know why this is so scary, but it is. The reason I think it's scary is because it taps into something very animal in us, which is that fear of having a predator, a dangerous thing approach you and not being able to move or do anything about it. Because everything in your body wants to run, wants to escape. 
And having that kind of nightmarish feeling where you're just about to wake up, um, tapped into like that way is um, is something rare, I think, when people really understand that those kind of deep human impulses. So that's an example, a favorite of mine. I also love the Silent Hill video games because which you've introduced me to as well. It's a video game series which where the horror is almost exclusively drawn from the idea of traumatic memories and every monster every scene every um every setting is all kind of the whole thing has always been planned well and that they've thought about what are the sort of kind of what are the sorts of traumas you would experience if you were a war hero for example a soldier or you were somebody who had uh who'd had an abusive childhood and they kind of draw on all those ideas and they put it in this utterly new context that give it this new horrific appearance and i just think it's so clever yeah the the general i won't go into the the backstory of the town itself silent hill but the kind of premise of the game is that each each game you will play a different character sometimes they they have connections with each other but not always um and they've been called to this town which they've generally had some kind of connection with before um, and the town becomes this uh, sort of nightmare, this playground of their subconscious, yeah. where the same old buildings appear over and over again, but the monsters will tailor themselves to kind of reflect the, re- um, the, the yeah, like you said, uh, the, the traumas that they've been called to the town to face. Um, so one of the most iconic villains is a creature called Pyramid Head, um, who uh, is portrayed as being this, uh, is being an executioner, he carries this enormous, uh, it's not a scythe, I don't know what you'd call it, this enormous blade behind him. His, um, kind of true to his name, he, he doesn't have a face, he's just got this enormous, w- what shape would you call that? It's like a, it's like a triangular head. It's, well, it's a pyramid, but it's, but it's kind of points downwards, yeah, it's, almost like a mask at the same time. Yes, it's an enormous helmet mask, um, and it's so, he, he look, it's so heavy, and yet, and so human at the same time and that is said to symbolize the um a character called james's guilt over something that happened to his uh, deceased wife and there's this um one um the first boss fight you have with pyramid head you don't actually no matter how much you shoot him no matter how much you um or or or, or use any other weapon on him um, he, it doesn't matter. Like he won't leave until he's ready to leave. So you just have to run around this tiny room trying to avoid him, and it's just this amazing so, metaphor for trying to escape guilt. You just have to kind of face your guilt so until it passes. That. It's so clever. Um, just very quickly, unless someone wants to jump in with something else there before I talk about my some of my favorites. Please, uh, unless uh, yeah, do you want to just go for it and then we'll come to Stephen? Is that right? Um, well, I think maybe the reason I, I I kind of talk so much about affect and body and and mimicry is because I'm my favorite kind of horror films are, are psychological horrors. Because um, Stephen, you you've said there's this overlap between horror thriller, horror um, comedy. I really like horror dramas, so films like Don't Look Now, Misery, Rebecca, uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, The Birds. They're very eclectic, and they're from all over. Um, they're from like they, they span decades throughout Hollywood. But I think if I was to draw a kind of connection between them all, it's characters. It's that I'm actually emotionally invested in the in the um, in the stories of the characters themselves, even without the horrifying elements. And I 
I like them because they really, and I'll, I'll talk about this more when we talk about question four, these are films that really overlap pathos and fear as emotional responses, that the connections between pathos and horror um, and the catharsis that can be um, found in this as a viewer. So Don't Look Now is, it's a kind of surrealist melodrama about a couple who lose their young daughter in a drowning incident. And when she drowned, she was wearing a, a red coat and they go to Venice to kind of escape. Um, but in Venice, the wife meets um, um, two, what would you call them, soothsayers who, see, who say that their daughter's still alive and she's trying to talk to them and she believes them. But her husband, played by Donald Sutherland, is utterly adverse to this. But then he starts seeing a little figure in red running about the town. And it's the film doesn't, it's a really, I think um, you do need to kind of, if you don't know the story, if you haven't read the Daphne du Maurier short story, you might need to kind of look up to kind of get the ending explained because there is one thing the film doesn't explain, which I think it doesn't set up, which I think would have made the ending make a lot more sense. Um, but it has that very Lynchian feel to it. In fact, I would say David Lynch probably was, have, I think lots of directors have been really influenced by this film. Um, the, the end scene is... Is, um, is close to a sensation of what a nightmare feels like, I think I've ever experienced, other than maybe a scene in Mulholland Drive by David Lynch, oh. which we'll talk about later. Yeah. Um, but so there's a, there's a real horrifying element to the film, but there's also this amazing poignancy to it. Like it's one of the best films about grief, I think, ever released. Um, Misery is um, based on the novel by Stephen King, which I love even more than the film. I think the film's a very good adaptation. But what fascinates me about Misery is that it's about a writer who gets um, kidnapped, basically, well, I'll use the word kidnapped, by an obsessive fan of his, and he's trapped in this bed. Um, and and it's, it's so, it's one of the most... Um, it's a really tense, really claustrophobic experience, but also the character is really interesting. What makes Annie Wilkes so scary is that you can tell she's she, she believes what she's doing is right. She doesn't perceive herself as a villain. She's just a very sick woman with this really warped um, love and affection for this man. Um, but Stephen King said that when he wrote that book, what Annie Wilkes kind of symbolized to him was his relationship with alcohol and drugs. And when you think of it through that lens, it becomes very fascinating. This, you know, it's like, I'm your number one fan. These drugs are, were like the things feeding him and keeping him alive, but they were also destroying him and ruining his creativity. And I don't, I, I don't quite know. I'd have to read into it more, but I find stuff like that really interesting. It's like an ego or something, yeah. isn't it? Stephen? So what, what's my favourite? Yeah, any favourite? My favourite horror. I think one interesting uh, ingredient to toss into the cauldron at this point would be um, a media that we've not spoken about before, which is uh, RPGs, role-playing games. So if anyone's played Dungeons & Dragons, you create a character... And then you play inside this imaginary world, which is led by... Uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, they're called a dungeon master. They're like a game master. So it's like you're all telling each other a, sto a story. You're all contributing to the overall narrative. 
And uh, when I was a student, we used to once or twice a month get together and play uh, the greatest RPG, which is Call of Cthulhu. Um, and the idea of Call of Cthulhu is that you are in a Lovecraftian world. Um, in addition to health points, when you get attacked and you lose health points, you've also got sanity points. So every time you see a monster, um, either you take a role, and if your character is intelligent, then they understand the horror of what they're looking at, and they lose sanity. Um, I, by chance, had a dumb character who just rolled low on intelligence. So every time he saw, you know, the, the hand monster from under the bed, he'd just look at it and was too dumb to understand that he was seeing something horrific. So he managed to last for several campaigns. But the game is actually designed to kill off your characters in sort of like gruesome, nihilistic, terrifying ways. Um, and so... I do remember after every one of our games, I'd walk home in the dark and I'd just sort of like feel this emptiness in the world. And it's it was such a fantastic, horrifying, experiential, shared thing. Um, when my character eventually did die, I as I remember it, we all had like 20 minutes of mourning because we'd become so attached to like the people in this game. Um, and actually, you know, um, credited for doing our artwork, Thomas Smee, uh, still has, he sent me a picture of my old character sheet and I saw it and I, I was like, oh, it's Crafty Joe. Rest in peace, Crafty Joe. He died in the 1920s, but you know, we're, we're still mourning him. Mm. Um, so that's pure affect. That's, that's this shared creative experience where, where the point is to experience the horror of how small and insignificant we are. That's um, incredible. Yeah. I'd also say that... I'm sorry, were you talking? No, I was. I, was, I, I, I accidentally thought you'd finished speaking. All I was saying was it must be incredible to come up, come up with those as a community, as a group. You'll have this attachment yeah. to it you could never have with a horror film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I mean... I, I always feel like if you're reading a book, it's like a relationship between you and the author. The author gives you words and then you turn them into ideas. And so it is a collaborative thing. But then when you have a group, just depending on how many people are there, one person's giving you the words, but then you're responding back and you have power over what happens in the story. And so it's it's like reading a book between seven people. Mm. And it's it's this really beautiful art form which is in between acting and improvisation the way we did it comedy writing reading you know it's all these different parts of your brain going off at once but that's not quite relevant um i think a lot of television shows draw on the the uh the staples of horror so if you look at something like uh heroes there's a lot of that going on where um the the villains do like these just awful gruesome things and it, it, you're left every week with sort of like the memory of of like like the of how bad man can be i mean another one is doctor who 
which totally draws upon the Ten Little Indians formula. Um, some of the best episodes, uh, like Blink, which has this uh, interesting monster in it, which can only move when you're not looking at it. Uh, mm. Probably my favourite story is The Satan Pit, where uh, Doctor Who, who's meant to know everything, comes across this creature which is so ancient that he doesn't understand what it is. Um, I suppose... So, horror we think of as being this adult thing, but actually it's sort of informs lots and lots of different kinds of media. Absolutely, it overlaps. But the question was, what's my favourite? I I, I guess my my favourite is probably... um, probably Alien or, or Terminator 2 which is really more of an action film mm. <laughs> uh, yeah kind of picking up on something you said because uh, I, 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 part of the question I didn't really answer is but why do I get pleasure from this why do I like watching mm. a film about grief why do I like watching why do I like kind of exploring these really dark themes and I think there's I'm not going to sit here and psychoanalyze myself in too much detail but I certainly think with something like when I play Silent Hill or when I invest myself in a film, um, another amazing one is The Babadook. I remember watching that very late at night um, and really getting chills. Um, I think it's, it's kind of much like the characters in the film. There's a kind of, if I can face the monsters here, I can face monsters in real life or memories of, of, of monsters, of, uh, or, you know, there's a, and, and it's even more, more so when you're playing um, a video game, because you're, you're taking a more, uh, you're taking even more control because you get to physically control the character. Mm. Um, and it's like, it's a superficial kind of fear because you're, you're entering into a world you understand is is not real, um, but but it's kind of the same function as nightmares, I guess. It's, I mean, no one really knows why we dream exactly, but it is speculated that nightmares are kind of a way of of your brain clearing out anxieties, kind of get, getting rid of them, working through them a little yeah. bit. Um, and actually, if you don't dream, I think it tends to make you more stressed. I've certainly found that, like, without, without getting too um, too overly personal, I've actually started taking, for the first time ever, an antidepressant that really works for me recently. And one thing I have noticed that it helps me do is go into deep sleep and have dreams that I remember. And they're not very pleasant dreams and they're often pretty bizarre, but I honestly think it's helping in a way. It makes me feel... That's fascinating. I, I think I actually feel less stressed throughout the day now because of it. And it's kind of like that with horror. You're entering into someone else's nightmare. But if you can fight that, you you feel like... You, you can fight other things. Yeah, maybe there's a catharsis. Like I saw this film, I endured it, and I can, and I, I you know, yeah, it, I can, I, you know, I managed to get through The Exorcist. I managed to get through this. Yeah, I think there's that catharsis. There's also, the, uh, we're talking about the pleasures derived from it. Mm-hmm. I think suspense is pleasurable in mm-hmm. some ways, um, you know, and that's obviously not just horror. So there's a film we watched, um, that Jake Gyllenhaal, Hugh Jackman one. I've already forgotten the name of it. Right at the Prisoners. front of Netflix. Prisoners. Prisoners. Yeah, that that's that's some um, hugely suspenseful all the way through. Um 
but it's not a horror film. I think that, but but the kind of suspense of you know, again a Lynch film or a or a Kubrick like um you know whatever it's called, The Shining is meant to be suspenseful uh, in many ways. I I despise The Shining, but that's a that's a different rant. But I think when suspense is sustained, it only builds and builds and builds if you if the film is is done right. Um, and then it pays off sometimes, but then it kind of comes back in a new way in a later scene. So, but I, th- I want to come back to what you said about the idea of nightmares being so. So, I mean, I think you're definitely right about dreams because I'm thinking about some examples you hear where folks with a lot of pent up anger will sometimes go to bed and they will start punching Mm -hmm. the air like in a kind of aggressive way in their sleep they will get up and start ranting at nothing in a kind of sleepwalking sort of sense and that is clearly the brain going we need to do something about all this anger this pent-up anger it's uh it's not good for you and so we need to kind of release it in some way we need to confront it um and i think sleep does that it is the brain trying to resolve its own issues i suppose and and things that it hasn't fully confronted that's definitely true but um horror in a sense then maybe is like almost this kind of cathartic like let's look at society's fears let's confront our fears as a let's confront our fears as a society and whether that be our fear of death mm-hmm. our fear yeah, of being mauled by a, a random monster in the dark our fear of those hoodlums our fear of well assault of any kind as i said it's just it's it's our way of coming to terms with ourselves in a sense and maybe that's why horror is so important yeah and it doesn't have to be um i mean it doesn't have to be this deep kind of quietly traumatizing experience in itself it can be also fun like you've kind of alluded to Stephen. you can over not overcome but you can get release on your your fear of being chased you know when you watch nancy you know desperately trying to work against the um the clock you know desperately trying to wake herself up when freddy krueger's chasing her you know you can kind of shriek in joyful fear there um and you know bask in that Although, actually, I've just remembered how Nightmare on Elm Street ends, so no, that's not got a lot of catharsis, actually, at all. Um, but, you know, with that kind of dread at the end, you can you can kind of go, oh, my God, but then realise, but I'm safe right now. That can also be a release as well. Like, oh, you can shudder, but then bask in a new sense of freedom. Um, so not all, not, all, not all of horror's uplifting aspects have to stem from a happy ending or the monster being defeated. Sometimes it can stem from... Well, maybe maybe the monsters that I have to face aren't that bad. Yeah, so I was thinking along similar lines uh, because we all do have anxieties in everyday life. But um, with horror films, it's one of the most uh, formulaic genres. It's one of the most almost uh, predictable. It's, you always know what's going to happen. That's kind of the point of the jump scare is that you know that the tension is building and that is going to be a release. So it, it's imposing a structure upon real anxieties, but in a way that you can handle them. Uh, so it is like nightmares, really. 
It's a way of working through feelings. It's a way of working through feelings, but then putting them into a structure which you can then compartmentalize. Making it predictable. I mean, the, the, the timing of the jump scares seems to be a staple of trailers, like horror trailers. There's almost a kind of, uh, you know, that, that we talked about it in our trailers episode, that kind of pause, bang. Sort of thing. The pause is mm-hmm. almost always the same length. It's almost as if they focus group to the hell out of it until they can find the perfect mm-hmm. kind of uh, beat for beat horror trailer or beat for beat horror film um, and how to use the jump scares that way. But some of them aren't even scary. Sometimes just a random elderly lady will pop up on the bang and she's not even made to look scary. She's just sitting there in a chair. That's it. Um, mm. or, or just a person on the bang. Like it's 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 so strange to me. I find it not in any way kind of cathartic or like anything's being released or there's even any suspense being built up. But maybe there's just some people who I don't know. It's kind of like peekaboo to me. <laughs> it's kind of like what horror is to a child. Question three: Films of the genre are seldom, if ever, nominated for prestigious awards. Why is horror nowadays looked down upon as a genre? I look down upon Alfred Hitchcock's treatment of women. Um, so why are they never nominated for awards? Um, well, this is obviously not entirely true. There are... this. I think what, Stephen, you were saying there about horror being one of the most predictable genres, I agree and don't agree. I agree there's um a cert- there's quite a lot of very high profile horror films that revel in these predictable um and in, in a predictable formulaic structure but in my head um remembering some of my favorites so films like films like Don't Look Now Misery Whatever Happened to Baby Jane Rebecca all which got quite a lot of acclaim like critical acclaim I don't know if, um, and I think between them, a good few award nominations as well. They don't revel in the typical jump scare and setups and payoffs and characters that we see in the more um, more popular um, and, and traditional types of what we've come to understand as being like the most archetypal horror films, like Halloween, like um, Friday the 13th like alien and so i think i think um it's that it is that it's that kind of misleading image of predictability and a genre that's there to invoke a cheap response an instant response that you don't have to really think about that's partly why it's it's a bit it's it's, it's dismissed now um, and why that's relied on so much is what makes it appealing by directors who do try to make horror films now. Um, because if you, because um, one of the most popular and I think well-acclaimed films of all time is Silence of the Lambs, which is obviously a horror film, and that, that is one of the only films to win the Big Five at the Oscars. Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, Actress and Actor. So, So it's... So we can maybe talk about that, the difference. Yeah, maybe maybe it's not even the horror elements which win at the award. Mm-hmm. 
it's the other elements which are more familiar to academy members as being indicative of good cinema Mm-hmm. Maybe horror almost is a kind of disqualifying <laughs> element the more of it you put in. Yeah, I think there's definitely been a long period where the word horror has become um, almost stigmatised as a genre. And we see this in, in fiction as well. Like if you write horror, it's generally assumed you're writing YA or something fairly lowbrow. Um, yeah. There's not really liter. We don't really see horror as being literary unless it's like super surrealist, um, super allegorical. Um, and I think what that has meant is actually there has been attempts to revive horror and produce some really unique, interesting and um, horror that, that broaches that psychological, uh, dramatic element uh, beyond just just the fear side, like um, things like the Babadook, um, mm. which got lots of acclaim but I don't think it didn't really get not you know it didn't get picked up by mainstream awards I think there was a big snub with Hereditary at the very least uh for Toni Collette who I think deserved an Oscar I think people were annoyed she didn't get an Oscar nomination for that I think um the the Academy will eat up any genre just as long as you feed it to them the right way Mm -hmm. I mean uh Joker Mm. was not anything more than a pretentious comic book adaptation uh, Black Panther wasn't really much more than a comic book adaptation that dealt with certain themes. Um, La La Land was a musical which, you know, dealt with nostalgia for Hollywood, which, damn, if if they could make a horror film about, uh, you know, an African-American producer in the 1920s, Hollywood then that would get all the awards. That's a really good um, point. Yeah, it, it, so it really does depend... <laughs> okay, so let's backtrack seven months here. What's he called? Todd Todd Hayes? Todd, uh, Todd Phillips? His genius is knowing exactly which boxes to tick. Not that he made a good film. <laughs> but um, but there you go. Um, yeah, so I think this, this is interesting. It, horror films are seldom, if ever, nominated... But horror is the genre which is sort of the experimental... It's where most prestigious directors, a lot of prestigious directors, not all of them, really cut their teeth. If you look at Bong Joon-ho, who won uh, the most recent Best Film Academy Award for his film Parasite, uh, every single one of his films sort of has varying degrees of fantasy, horror, and themes of uh societal uh dis uh societal imbalance um it just so happened that parasite had slightly more in the societal imbalance graph than in the horror and the fantasy graphs Mm. um but he he was still revered as being a man who was very good at telling stories through film um and it was the same thing with peter jackson where if you watched lord of the rings films you can entirely see his origins as a grotesque, gross-out, low-budget horror movie director, like the just the grisly way that uh, Aragorn chops Lurtz's head off, or the way that um, 
you know, Viggo Mortensen's body sort of deteriorates across the two towers with like his his hands covered in blood and and uh, cuts in his face and all that sort of stuff. You really feel those things, and and the Hobbit movies are nothing but gratuity, um, utterly unnecessary. Um, uh, another example would be Sam Raimi, who did the Spider-Man movies, uh, became really successful through those. Um, so in current day, uh, the the two American directors, I think they're American. Um, I'm sure one of my parents will write in and correct us if I'm wrong. Uh, Robert Eggers and Ari Aster. Actually, I think Ari Aster is Swedish. Um, th- these are two. Oh, and, and the third one would be um, uh, the guy who directed Us. Oh, I know you're talking about um, uh, Get Out. Yeah, Get Out. Yeah. Can you Get remember the director's guy. name? Jordan Peele. Yeah. Okay, so Jordan Peele. Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, all three of them uh, are making, with the exception of Jordan Peele's been recognized by the, by the Academy, but like I say, he's making films which deal with themes of uh, African-American oppression. So they tend to, you know, that boosts the film in their eyes. Maybe not to a win, but uh, certainly to a nomination. Ari Aster and Robert Eggers are both filmmakers who are being looked at as like the saviors of cinema um robert eggers recently made a film called the lighthouse which features which is entirely filmed on old style cameras and it it tells the story of uh two men willem dafoe and robert pattinson have to go to this island uh in the middle of the ocean uh and live in a tender lighthouse together and do they slowly go insane are their minds slowly warped by some sort of alien creature yes they are um but it's it's all it's all a psychological drama it's all psychological horror and Ari Aster uh, made the film Midsummer which was a real star vehicle mm-hmm. for Florence Pugh she goes to uh this cult in uh uh Denmark or Norway I can't remember which one Sweden um and it's this sort of allegory for you know, being a teenager and giving into peer pressure, she she's a very passive character, and then she goes to the the space of the cult where everyone is influencing each other, and then she sort of flourishes in the cult environment. Okay, so massive spoilers for those films. Um, so horror films themselves are not really recognised by the academies, but very regularly horror directors like quote-unquote quality horror directors um, break through into the industry from there. Practice their craft. It's a good space for experimentation. There's just one more thing I want to say about Hereditary because I found that a really interesting case because there was a kind of excitement and a buzz around it that it was um, it was horror back on form. Um and it, it it got um critical acclaim um much more so than than horror films generally do now um hereditary is a really interesting complex portrait of uh, a family it opens um at the funeral of the the grandmother of the mother of um the main the main character Tony Collette. She's married and she has uh, two children. 
and her daughter who's um <laughs> I, I don't want to be mean about a child actor but her daughter who's a little bit unusual looking and a little bit odd um she had uh, a some kind of a secret relationship with the grandmother um that's that's kind of set out from the beginning and it's this really interesting portrait it's really hard to talk about this film without giving away a really surprising twist in it that happens fairly early on but what what's amazing about hereditary is it it has really striking jolting horrifying moments and they're but they're jump scares without the traditional tactics of jump scares it's more like the the, the, the rush of dread with just the image you see on screen there's no sound effects and there's um there's a bit of the you know you turn a light on and you see a figure but you kind of blink and you miss it and it's that much more sophisticated slow burning horror that you get from it and it's just wrapped around this incredibly interesting portrait of a family and it explores these themes of like motherhood like so Tony Collette's character um, she reveals had major aversions to being a mother and she has all these feelings of guilt towards her son and that's wrapped up very that's all comes to the fore after something happens to her daughter um, and there's some just really horrendous but not gratuitous imagery in it um, and so w- what makes it so powerful is there's this supernatural element but it's wrapped up in these really this really extreme dysfunction which feels very real and really tragic because she makes this whole speech about something that happens and says um you know if this if this awful thing had brought us closer at least that would have been something but it's nothing and it's just this family falling to pieces so there's this huge sense of devastation um alongside alongside all the the more traditional um scary stuff um, and it has, I think, one of the best seance scenes I've ever seen. In that, kind of like the I I I had um memories of like The Exorcist. In that it was done exactly as you'd imagine a real seance, if this was to happen, would play out. Like Tony, her character reacts exactly as I think a real person would react if the cup actually started moving. It's it's so well done. It manages to to sidestep so many cliches. But what I'm building to with this is the film completely wrecks itself in literally the the last five minutes because I th- I think if the film had just let itself be this really interesting, open, devastating, horrifying experience you know alluding to these really complex themes of the secret toxic strands of loyalties that can develop within families and how that's passed through generations Mm. and finding out things that you didn't know about your about your ancestors that you'd really rather not know it should have stayed that and what it instead ended up doing was bringing itself to a logical conclusion with the most convoluted twist I think I've ever seen in a film um, that sounds like the work of a Hollywood producer as opposed to a writer. Well, I don't know that. But it's honestly, it's like Scooby-Doo dumb the way this is in that you see one thing at the beginning 
or, or you see one thing, there's one scene in a film about 15 seconds dedicated to this thing, and it turns out that was that was the thing all along. Um, so I almost, what I was, I've maybe gone on on a bit too long here, but I think, I'm not saying Hereditary would have, wouldn't have been snubbed, even if it had just kind of stayed true to its potential. But I think this is something else that makes horror films fall flat when they force logic and force explanations. Like, it's amazing how unscary the monster becomes once you actually find out what it is. It turns out it's the dead, it's the spirit of the the old janitor or it's, you know... You know, you find the portraits in the attic and it's like, oh, that's who the little girl is. It's so much more scary when you don't know who the little girl is. And I think there's this fear of interpretation with horror that makes it undersell itself sometimes. I think that maybe comes back nicely to the remarks made by um, uh, Charlie uh, Clive Barker about the, mm -hmm. you know, reveling in unreality is probably what Morty Moore means is start to start to think about the unknown and portraying the unknown as opposed to drawing logic through everything partly maybe that's partly what he's kind of talking about um what you said there about genuine jump scares made me think of a couple of things um firstly it made me think of um it like the new version of it the film that came out a few years ago I saw it, didn't see the chapter two one. Um, there's a number of, there are a number of good scenes in that film. It's, it's good, it's okay. Um, but they do rely on certain things, certain tropes that I didn't realize were being used in horror films as well as horror trailers. For example, when a jump scare happens, instant, entirely, obli ob like, entirely obligatory for some reason, this screeching sound effect. Bah! when something pops out that's unexpected. And this happens, I think, in the latter half of the film where there's a character talking to another character in a bathroom and then they turn to leave and then the clown is there and he grabs him. And it's accompanied with, bah! Yeah. And you just think, if you'd done that without that sound effect, I would not have expected it and I'd have fucking jumped out of my seat. You wouldn't have needed that. You wouldn't have needed that, um, that sound effect at all. Um, and and I just think that that that's what folks are scared to do is to to rely on the kind of truly disturbing nature of what's on screen. Question four: What other films slash examples can we think of that employ horror techniques or contain scenes which noticeably disturb the viewer, despite not being categorized as horror themselves? What does this tell us about the perhaps arbitrary ways in which we define horror? Is it entirely subjective? I think Alfred views women's personal space as entirely subjective. Um, yeah, so what, what I was thinking with this question is for my master's thesis, I wrote on representations of ghosts on screen because I came across this um, this article by a woman called Marianne Doan, I think it's quite a well-known essay where she talks about what makes melodrama as a body genre so effective and she talks about the importance of temporal relations um, in swaying um, our emotions, particularly sadness and fear. So she says the effect of the melodrama is the too late and the effect of the horror film is the too early. 
So what she means by that is um, with horror films, the kind of sense of, uh, of oh no, and, and devastation comes from when the killer catches up with the, the, the woman desperately trying to run away from him. Um, and it's the, oh, she's almost going to get away, but then just at the last minute, he steps on her hand and then she's dead. And it's that kind of, oh, it was, it's the too soon. Like you're, you're kind of suspended on the edge of what you wanted of a relief that you didn't get. And you're just having to deal with all this shock that that you have now. Um, Whereas with melodrama, it's what's known as the too late, um, which is that sense of you're not going to get this chance again to amend what can't be undone. So, for instance, you know, you you chase the person on the train who you know is the love of your life and you miss it and it's and you can't get the moment back. The famous shoulder squeeze and brief encounter, that devastating moment when they have to say goodbye and someone interrupts them and it's it's too late, nothing can be done. Um, you know, their their fates are reversed. But I mean, you might have picked up on as I'm talking about this that there actually is this overlap in this and there's very there's a very, very fine line between the too early and the too late. And what fascinated me about ghosts is that they're used in horror films, but they're also used in a lot of romantic films and a lot of comedies, like Truly Madly Deeply Ghost, to use a really obvious example. Um, and I was looking at at these how these manifestations um, fundamentally were different ways of evoking sensations associated with grief so when they're in a horror film it tends to to be the 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 devastation of 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 loss in a so i can't remember who wrote this but there was there was one essay i read that said when someone dies in a melodrama um you're you're grieving because of the irreversibility of time but when a ghost shows up in a film, what that shows actually is the very surprising reversibility of time. And so it's the fulfillment of an impossible wish. Mm. And this can be exploited to be something really, really dreadful in something like um, A Tale of Two Sisters, which is a Korean film, or Rebecca, where the, the, the ghost won't leave, the presence of Rebecca will not leave the house that the, the new wife moves into and, and really causes and causes all this awful havoc because the memory won't leave and that obviously triggers feelings of of um of grief in us because that's what it's like when someone dies sometimes you you want to let go of the memory but you can't so it kind of manifests that way um whereas in a film like truly madly deeply with alan rickman and juliette stevenson it's this release it's the ghost coming back to actually give the closure that you wouldn't normally get in a melodrama and and letting the character come to terms and let is able to let them go on their own terms so yeah so, so ghosts fascinate me because they kind of paradoxically embody absence and for me that was the kind of kicking off point for me realizing how arbitrary a lot of the ways we define particularly for me horror and melodrama the way we separate um, the way we separate devastation from fear and devastation from sadness. Um, so I suppose that's that, that's all I have to say about that. Did you mention Volver? Well, Volver is another example. Volver is a more complicated one, um, which is an, that's an Almodovar film where the, um, the ghost of um, a woman's mother returns. 
She's um, a full-blown character in the film as well. It's yeah, but that, that's, a, that's, again, a kind of, that's a comedy um, drama, almost, that yeah. one. Um, but yeah, again, that's kind of showing that that's definitely a film that heals and it's this... The, the idea that she could come back and complete this unfinished business, it just, so, it just happens in that film. It's unfinished business that will help the protagonist. In a horror film, all it is is unfinished business that will cause the protagonist grief basically yeah oh, when i say grief i mean unhappiness and trauma and like the way a nightmare distresses you but it just almost distresses you in a kind of necessary way because they're there to resolve things as we said earlier i mean that's a sweeping statement i suppose but right the idea of things getting resolved of grief getting resolved or or people coming back to visit you is that a fair thread to draw well, kind Dreams, of. Dreams, nightmares, horror. Well, yeah, you can definitely parallel the function of nightmares and the function of horror films as they can help you to come, as they can make you face your fears for better or worse mm -hmm. and look at images that you can't stomach looking at but be forced to cope with it anyway and possibilities and situations that you don't want to fathom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... Um, but ghost films... All oh, I was saying, certain, certain romantic yeah. ghost films uh, just kind of do the opposite. That's like a, a nice dream, really. But don't, don't look now, I would almost say, kind of falls into the bracket of a romantic film for 90% of it. Yes. It's kind of a romantic horror, a rom-horror. Yeah, um, you know. so I'm, I'm kind of doing the question inside out. I'm, I'm talking about films that are, horror, are, are by definition horror, but I think breach into other. So what the original question was is, can anybody think of films with standalone horror scenes in them or, or techniques. And we have touched on this a bit because, Stephen, you've talked a lot about filmmakers that use clearly what they've learned through the horror technique in other genres. And, Tom, you've talked... Alfred, you've talked about Twin Peaks. Although, yeah, I, mean, I think... And Stephen, any examples that fit into this question that you can think of, firstly? Well, Ebba's... Um description of the, the 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 contrast of the ghost actually uh brings me perfectly back around to doctor who um there's this great episode of doctor who written by russell t davis um which he threw together at the last minute because um a couple of scripts fell through while he was producing series two so uh, this episode is called tooth and claw and it features uh queen victoria uh, in the later years of her life. And she goes to Scotland uh, with the Koh-i-Noor diamond, um, which was because every year she gets it honed and, uh, and you know, cut down just a little bit to try and make it into the perfect diamond because this is something that her now deceased husband used to do. Um, but anyway, there's this plot involving some monks who try and trap Queen Victoria in a house. Um, and over dinner... Um, Queen Victoria is wanting uh, the the lord of the manor to tell this story uh, about about a werewolf, and over the course of the scene, um, we see that she is determined to hold on to fantastical stories because she's unable to get over the death of her husband, um, and she has a beautiful line, and I can't quote it directly. But um, it's something to the effect of the reason that we love ghost stories is not for the fear 
that's for children we we want to hold on to the idea that something of our loved ones is still left um and so that whole episode um it transpires they're inside a second plot which was made by uh what prince albert uh in which the, the diamond is, is the weapon that they use to, to destroy the werewolf. And so it's this nice contrast between the fantastical legacy, you know, the idea that she's clinging on to the past and the idea that he could come back to her, and the fact that his legacy is, is a very literal, practical thing, that he made plans uh, that would ensure her safety. Um, and there's actually quite a lot going on in that episode. And I think that's a good example of horror techniques being employed uh, to scare children, but also to entertain on a Saturday night, like that time slot isn't necessarily something that you would associate with horror, but many of the tropes and the, um, and the structure of horror are used in very popular entertainment. If anyone wants to cut in now, that'd be fine, but I've got something else to say on a similar... Say it. Keep going. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so another thought that I had while we were all making our tea just now uh, is that for a similar audience as Doctor Who, uh, that the Harry Potter novels are apps. They they have running through them a very, very horrific sense of darkness. Usually just off the page. Usually just in the backgrounds in the plots that are going on. Uh, particularly in the fourth book. There's this this story going on just outside of Harry's sight where a woman is kidnapped and murdered and tortured and then this um son who's been put into prison escapes and he and he murders his father and transforms him into a bone and buries him in Hagrid's garden um and there's there's so much darkness in that book I almost feel with J.K. Rowling, she's a very similar uh, writer to Stephen King, where I feel like they're working through a lot of darkness in their own souls, in their writing. Um, yeah. And it's it's a case of like horror almost being a coping mechanism for the darkness of depression or addiction or the struggles that they've gone through, where the the bleakness of the world does come into their books. But I think with both of them, usually the good wins out and so it is sort of a mediation between good and evil um i watched an interview recently with ray fines where he's talking about getting into the character of lord voldemort and he's thinking about what he's done and what he and what he can do and his uh his outlook and his attitude on the world and he said it was actually one of the more disturbing parts that he's ever played and I thought that was very interesting. And it's a good interview. It's on the special features of uh, the Goblet of Fire DVD and therefore also on YouTube. Um, and he's talking about how Voldemort, when you think about what he's doing, he's kidnapped a child, tied him up, and he starts violating him. He's touching his scar and torturing him. And Ray Fiennes was like, that's some fucked up shit, bro. And honestly, <laughs> I don't really want to be in this character's head <laughs> for for longer than i have to be um and i think that's true that's all on the page that's all right there and and yet harry potter has this perception in the public of being quite a light-hearted jaunty private school romp 
but there's some there's some really bleak tough subject matter which which she's able to cover with what i think is quite a deft hand lord of the rings arguably contains a lot of kind of horror elements as well wouldn't you say what does lord of the rings um oh yeah partially tied to frodo's kind of psychological breakdown with the ring and mm-hmm. um to gollum's transformation yeah it's quite horrific the orcs their very existence is very fantasy horror um mm-hmm. does that does that does that ring true i think that is true i think um a lot of particularly with the design of the orcs actually i think that's a really fantastic example is an example of uh, Peter Jackson's love for B-movie gore fests. Um, there's a great story from behind the scenes. There's this uh, leader of the orc army who is like the elephant, the elephantitis orc. And uh, one day, uh, Peter Jackson went in to see all the different sculpts that the uh, the designers had come up for this character called Gothmog's head. And legend goes, he looks at one that he liked. And then he picked up a lump of clay and he slapped it onto his face. And he picked up another lump of clay and slapped it onto his face. And they were like, oh my God, Peter's losing it. <laughs> and he's just more and more and more clay. And then this orc's face just grew into this, this grotesque, malformed, um, hideous creature. And the designers in the end were like, and it kind of worked. <laughs> like, he's a crazy person, but sometimes he's right. <laughs> Um, yeah, but well, I think uh, with, with Gollum, hmm. um, particularly in the, the introduction to the return of the king, as you see his body falling apart yeah. with the lack of sunlight, his teeth falling out as he bites into live wriggling fishes, there's a, a serious element of, of body horror. And what is truly brilliant about Gollum is that He's he's basically Frodo 200 years down the, down the line. He's the result yeah. of addiction. And that's why when people say, oh, Lord of the Rings could never work because it's all just like this eye, this, the, the villain's just this abstract thing. It's like, no, no, no. The, the villain is Gollum and the villain is the temptation in Frodo's heart. And Peter Jackson and team recognized that. And that is why it's so powerful. It, Saruman as well is is Gandalf, but the temptation in his heart to grasp power, and it's um, yeah. Sauron isn't even really the villain. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's he's just he's a background yeah. character. He he's um he's the abstract not- notion of Satan, but um even uh, Tolkien, who was a a dedicated Catholic. I think recognize that a lot of evil comes from our own hearts. I think that you were going to say something. Actually, you go first. No, I was going to say Gollum's a really good example because he exemplifies that um, irreversibility of time as well. Like even if Gollum, he doesn't ultimately free himself at all from the bond. In fact, he sinks into lava with the ring. Um, what would have what what would have um, what would have been maybe taking him away from being a horror character is if there had been, if he had a big beauty in the beast transformation at the mm-hmm. end, if there was an opportunity, but that's 
uh, that sailed. Um, I'm trying to imagine that. <laughs> da, 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 Sorry, I said that a bit stupidly. But I was thinking as well, maybe that's that's kind of what's in these scenes that we remember as being horrifying, even though they're not technically horror films. Another one that comes up quite a lot, I think Watch Mojo um, did a list once, and it was like the scariest scenes from films that are non-horror, and the vast majority of them were just weird-ass disturbing imagery, random jump scares in, in kids' films like... Um, there's, there's something like Pee Wee's Playhouse. Oh, is it 80s kids' films? Like, yeah, things yeah, like okay, that. Yeah. Like That's just, a good example, actually. Yeah. Only on its own. Quite a lot of them were just crazy, disturbing imagery that, that, that jumped out. But one really stuck in my mind, and apparently a, a, a scene in a film that really still disturbs a lot of children when they watch it is Disney's Pinocchio. Ooh. When they turn in... When, I think it's Lampwick, his name is. It's when Pinocchio has gone to Pleasure Island and he's playing pool with a boy and the boy starts to turn into a donkey because that's what happens at Pleasure Island. The, these young boys are lured in with... Um, you can you just get to eat sweets and have fun all day. Um, there's no rules in Pleasure Island, but what there's actually this sinister curse of the island that turns them into donkeys. And you see the transformation of the boy and you see him starting to hee-haw and trying to scream... For his mother, as he like in looking at his hands turning into as they turn into hoofs, and Pinocchio's just <laughs> watching with his eyes like Jesus Christ, and Pinocchio is all of us as we watch that scene. But again, what's what's kind of unique about that is yes, Pinocchio escapes Pleasure Island, um, but none of the other boys do. So that's that's it. He's a donkey now, and you can't undo that. So it's the temporal relation. It's um. The handling of temporal relations, I think, that's a, a huge mm. part of what makes something horrifying. It's fascinating the role of horror in helping children grapple with um, nasty things that exist and that they will not be able to always be shielded from. And horror's way of kind of going, well, what do you think of this? Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and kids will be distressed by it, but... It's 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 a difficult question, you know, because folks, many folks believe oh, they shouldn't be seeing things like that and whatever else. And there's a whole debate about, you know, what kids should and shouldn't be watching. And I think many of us would argue, actually, it's there's a as long as it's not too horrendous, there's a kind of health, there's a healthiness to it. Well, there's a reason, I think, what you were saying, Stephen, about what Voldemort does to Harry you watch that as a you can show that to a child and even though they might be upset by it the fact that it's taking place in a fantastical world provides a shield mm -hmm. from the reality of what it's doing it is not the same as showing a film in which a child was tortured just by someone who'd kidnapped them you know yeah. that would be that would just be beyond horrendous but so i think fantasy is a really important it's a really important safe space that kids can explore some very, very dark things that subconsciously they'll maybe start to join up with things that happen in in real life mm -hmm. because without getting bogged down in, in the Harry Potter vortex <laughs> and um, whether or not J.K. Rowling's um, become Voldemort or Umbridge, spoiler, she, ha I, um, she hasn't, but no, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not entering into this. Back when JK was 
was Bay um, when she was queen of Twitter circa 2014. Th there had been some research producing that kids apparently that read Harry Potter grew up more tolerant, um, certainly more racially to tolerant and more open-minded and kind um, than kids who who hadn't read it or, or more likely mm -hmm. to be to, to have certain persuade um, certain left-wing I guess persuasions than um than other kids so I think that does demonstrate the power of allegory mm -hmm. in fantasy yeah I'll mention something another film which it's it's kind of difficult to explain but if I think about Arrival for a second have we all seen Arrival yeah I've not so that okay so I shall not spoil the film, and I wasn't planning on doing Thank so you. anyway, but Arrival is a film about um, about a, a kind of alien arrival on Earth. And we the main character is played by Amy Adams. She's um, a language specialist, a linguist. Uh, I think she's a professor of linguistics. Mm -hmm. And her job is to translate languages which have not um, so far been translated. She is hired by the military to try and interpret certain signals and symbols which the aliens are kind of sending. And the aliens themselves are quite, in some ways, quite frightening. They're usually in mist. You can't quite make out their form. They're quite mystical, quite mythological in some ways in appearance. And I suppose there is a horror to the way they look. But I found the film so difficult to watch because of its... I mean, there's a whole story revolving around Amy Adams's character, which is incredibly well done, and I don't want to kind of spoil any element of that or where it leads or where it goes. But what I do want to talk about is the what's going on in most of the film, which is that the you've got the military and you've got all these diplomats and these politicians mediate, and 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 Amy Adams is the kind of mediator between them and their intentions and the aliens and the message they are trying to communicate. And she senses that their message is not hostile. But all the way through, you've got humanity, react, uh, these diplomats and, and such, reacting in a way which could propel all the countries of the world towards an absolutely devastating war. Mm -hmm. And it feels entirely as it would in real life. It just feels like a totally natural human reaction, everything that's happening around her. The way she's being kind of ignored, despite, but, but actually the real issue is she's just trying to articulate this message, and it's, you know, you can't articulate it when everyone's on the, on kind of, you know, um, on adrenaline and is constantly stressing over the, the, the threat of war. They can't really take it in. There's a very kind of, you know, there's a masculinity, femininity thing going on, I suppose. But I found that the horror in that was almost like, it was almost like a flipped horror, because the, the, it wasn't the, kind of mystical-looking, mysterious alien beings that were in any way the frightening part of that for me. It was the human reaction to them. And I just want to cite that as an example of a film which is not in any way categorised as horror, but for, but to me feels like a kind of subversion of the horror genre, almost. So I massively recommend it, by the way. Arrival is a, a depressing but deeply thought-provoking film. What does this tell us about the perhaps arbitrary ways we define horror? Is it entirely subjective? Arguably, yes. Arguably, yes. It's just a, it's there are tropes that are recognisably 
affective like they affect us in in ways which are kind of unlike any other trope yeah but it's really difficult to define a genre genre in itself is you know you deconstruct even one bit and it becomes meaningless and impossible yeah genre can be this is kind of a discussion in itself but genre it serves a function mainly from a marketing perspective i would say um i think art really would be liberated if we were better at not looking through things through the the lens of genre all the time and it is quite funny because sometimes sometimes something you know gets put gets put out in the in the cinema or or a book gets released and it's it's challenging and it's subversive in itself and what you end up with is people try and cram it into like this weird hybrid it's a black comedy surrealist fantasy uh satire you know it it you know what i mean like so it's um yeah and and it can be restricting with something like if you say to someone this is really great film or this is really great book um I mean, it's a romantic book. Oh, I don't like romance. No, no, but this is different, you know, or, uh, you know, it's horror. Oh, no, I don't like horror. Sci-fi, no, I don't like sci You know, that instantly, it, it we decide that we like, we like certain genres based on the most... Um, distilled? Well, tra- yeah, the most distilled tropes that, that we associate with them. And that's constricting, and I think... And I, and I think horror is constricted by that. At the same time, just by me naming it horror is kind of putting it into... But at the same time, if we want horror to be better recognised by, for example, the Academy, mm-hmm. or better recognised as a unique kind of set of films which ought to be taken seriously because they reveal things to us we do not wish to see particularly, mm-hmm. then we need that label... Of course. Could I... Here, here's another example that I've I've thought of, actually. So the novel, and I guess the film adaptations, Wuthering Heights. Um, Wuthering Heights is, I think, a gothic horror story. So if you haven't... If, if, you, if you're not familiar with the story, it's set in uh, Yorkshire in the 1800s, and it's about this this family who what one night the the father brings home uh i think what's called i think he calls it the, a gypsy child i know that's probably not what we would say now uh heathcliff and the young boy instantly forms a very close bond with his adopted sister kathy and they you never actually see them in the book what they do in the moors but some very strange mystical bond is kind of formed between these two children and there's this weird, almost quasi-incestuous nature to their relationship where they've been raised as adopted brother and sister, but they're also in love with each other and they're inseparable. But Cathy, when she um, comes of age, decides she wants to marry someone else other than Heathcliff. And Heathcliff disappears somewhere that's never specified. And there's all sorts of interpretations. Like he, one of my favorite ones is he's, he went and make a, made a deal with the devil in that time. But um, when he comes back, he's managed to make himself very successful. 
and he's got this absolutely psychopathic plan in place. Um, so, spoiler alert, after Kathy dies, he sets about taking revenge on everyone who mistreated him when he was growing up and then also creating this really warped family where he forces Kathy's and her husband's offspring to marry his own offspring just so he can kind of contain all his all all his um he can contain every piece of Kathy he can find within this one house and he just gets more demented and more psychopathic as the book goes on so um naturally this is now known as the greatest love story of all time (laughs) and what basically happened was that when Wuthering Heights came out, it was published under the name Ellis <laughs> Bell because women weren't allowed to write stuff in those days because that made them a witch or something. And so they published the novel under Ellis Bell and everyone was like, dear God, burn it. This is a sick book about sick people, egad. Um, and then all of a sudden it turned out, everyone found out a woman called Emily Bronte wrote it. And then... It became a romantic novel because a woman wrote it. And naturally, it was a romantic book. So that's... Um, I don't really know what my my point is, but just the, the gendered nature of, of oh, the, yeah. you know, the things that we assume based on genre, it, it, it's so political and it's so constructed that, you know, things like that can happen as well. Whereas... And I mean no slight to the romance horror. Uh, sorry, I mean no... I'm not putting down romance as a genre. There's nothing wrong with with it as a genre. And um, again, I think it's obviously dismissed because it's associated mainly with women. But Wuthering Heights is a horror story. Um, and to, to say it's a romance is just such an insane misunderstanding about, it's about, about, about what, you know, and it's because it's challenging. We were, they were like, well, it, it's not quite this thing and it's not quite that thing, but there's, <laughs> you know, there, there's um, but 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 there's mention of marriage in it, so we'll just pa- try and pass it off as a love story. It's just mad. On on the bizarre nature of the horror genre, I've just gone on Letterboxd and filtered all the films I've ever watched down to the horror genre, and it's told me I've watched twenty three horror films, among them the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, James and the Giant Peach. Uh, <laughs> uh, Black Swan. Uh, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Forgot I'd even seen that. Um, and other things. But it's just, it just again, like I wouldn't in any way define uh, Rocky Horror as being a horror film, despite the title. And, and that's in there. So I think that. That shows the arbitrary arbitrarity better than anything else, I suppose. Uh, actually, actually, one one thing, right? We've not. There's one thing we haven't mentioned, which is your Skype background. Um, you've put up uh, a picture of a of a film that came out a couple of years ago. I think it was called Unfriended, was it? It was, and it it's was a, a horror film that takes place entirely on Skype. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, maybe we could talk for a brief second about what the future <laughs> might hold for horror. Is it doomed to just co- keep like you know? Re- you know, rehashing certain things, or do we hope that they'll? I mean, because you know, there's obviously good examples of horror still coming out. It's mm-hmm. just that they're maybe not as noticed. I I think I think there is going to be a split, or or there's already kind of been the beginning of a split because there is an audience for bottom of the Netflix barrel, bye bye man, 
Insidious 3. <laughs> the bye-bye man, I forgot yeah. that. Um, you know, there, there is a... And, and it's harmless, you know, because, you know, if you want to go to the cinema just to, just to have a jump scares and, you know... Um, you know, just have a bit of fun. Why not? But I do think what you're... I, I think there's going to be... Just based on things like Hereditary and that director who who was the same director who did Midsummer, um, and... Ari Aster, yeah. Yeah, and the, and the chap who did Parasite. I think there's going to be also a kind of reinvention of horror, but put into a more sophisticated um, genre context. Like... Yeah, and it will draw upon the horrors of what we think is happening to the world as well, Yeah, I think. Because there's so much of cinema is that at the moment. It's like, oh God, Trump is president, climate change is accelerating, you know, uh, coronavirus is happening, everything's going to shit. You know, so many films like Joker are playing on our insecurities about what the future holds at the moment. So maybe horror will, the horror genre will start to encompass some of those anxieties. I mean, I think Stephen's talked a lot about the way horror has funneled itself into fantasy films and I think it will definitely I think fantasy is almost going to become more challenging and more complex and and so is is sci-fi what I do hope though is that rather than just funneling itself through other genres like having to you you know um disguise itself as a as a existential sci-fi film or a a really um complex fantasy film I, I do want though I would love just to see a kind of standalone horror genre re-emerging but but uh an elitist horror if you will elite not elitist elite horror you know have you seen we the, got all the way the through this sc- and i didn't speak about sweeney todd which is a shame you're welcome to Sw- sweeney todd is a is a broadway musical by stephen sondheim um and he's done some fascinating interviews where he talks about how he wanted to make a slasher movie for the Broadway stage. Uh, now, last last uh, time we were talking about the perception of Broadway as being quite upper class and not 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 upper class, but but uh, and maybe not elitist. But there certainly is that financial uh, barrier there, um, and so he was trying to find ways to express the feeling of a horror movie through you know the the use of orchestration and the interaction between the characters and i'd sort of recommend that everyone uh, my favorite cast recording is the one with Imelda Staunton as uh, Mrs Lovett which was fantastic but he weaves into uh the orchestration and the most of the melodies of the characters the melodies which represent the separate characters the light motifs this uh, Dies Irae, um, which is in our culture popularly understood to represent death. Uh, and one of my favorite twists of the entire show is this little musical joke where we open the second act to the sound of Big Ben going, <clears throat> and we hear that. It is essentially the DS Erie and that death and murder are woven into the very character of the city that they're living in. Mm. It's an absolute work of genius. And if you ever get a chance, I'd recommend uh, 
seeking out some video essays about um, Sweeney Todd, which is significantly better than Tim Burton would have you believe. And uh, one of the few musical horrors, aside from Rocky Horror, apparently. Yeah. Um, have you seen... Uh, go on. The Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> oh, there's another one. Yeah. Um, lastly, Stephen, have you seen Unfriended? I have seen Unfriended. I'm on my uh, letterboxed horror page right now, and I, I gave it two and a half stars for ambition. <laughs> that is a lot. <laughs> Uh, right. Would you remark anybody? Spectacles, more like spooktacles. <laughs> Spectacles, a pop culture podcast, was presented by me, Alfred Hitchcockrell, Stephen Hyam, and Eva W. The series was created by Ever W, and the episode was edited by Stephen Hyam. The music was conceived and composed by the presenters and performed by me, Alfred Hitchcockrell. Our logo was kindly designed by Sarah Saville and Thomas Smee. If you have enjoyed what you heard today, then please find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud to rate, review, and subscribe for new episodes. And don't forget to connect with us through social media at Spectacles Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, or at Spectacles Pod on Twitter, Twitter, or email us on Spectacles Podcast curly a gmail dot com I didn't understand a word of that <laughs> nor do I understand women's personal boundaries <laughs> okay I'm gonna stop in three two one <laughs>